Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. We would uh, really hope that you'll help us next week as we uh, invite and have people join us. So um, if you don't mind to scoot over, uh, Thomas uh, grew his hair out for months for that role right there. So it looks really good. Um, So next week, 9 and 4, and then the week after New Year's Eve, one service, and this is where you're going to get this one, 10.30. So 10.30 service on on New Year's Eve, just one service, all right? Uh, Just make sure you note that so uh, so you're here whenever, uh, whenever we're here. All right. Um, Before we get into our text, one more update, and this is one that I'm really privileged and honored and excited uh, to celebrate you. We've been in a campaign for a while called For the Kingdom, um, and and this this uh, this update is really special. We had a very large gift given to us last week, and it has moved our loan balance under ninety-five thousand dollars. And so we're praising God for that. We are we're praising God for moving in the hearts and in the lives of many of our church family and to give and to uh, just pray with us. Continue to pray with us as we are so very close to, to finishing that part of the campaign and moving into the next part. Uh, continue to pray with us for, the, for faithfulness that we just continue to listen to God's vision that he has for his church and, and just follow along with him. And if you want to be involved in the For the Kingdom, there is information in the kiosk in the back. All right, so we've been in a Christmas series this is our third week now where we're asking and we're answering why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come in the world? Why did he put on flesh? Why did he come into the brokenness and the darkness of our world? Why did he come for us and be with us, which is what we celebrate at Christmas time? And so we've been studying through different texts that answer the question of why Jesus came so that we may see Christmas in its glorious, glorious lens, the light of Christmas, maybe not just the baby in a manger in eight days when you wake up on Christmas morning, but you'll see it and celebrate it in the lens of the glory of what Jesus has come and brought to us. And so we're going to continue that. And you have a Bible, join me in John chapter 10. We're going to be in John chapter 10 this morning. So far, we've looked at Jesus coming to bring us freedom from sin and death to serve us. Last week, Pastor Tyre led us through that. He came to serve us in his life, his death, his resurrection, but also to model service for us that we may follow after him in serving one another another. And today we look at Jesus coming to bring us life, not just any life, but actual real life. And so that begs the question, what do you mean bring us life? Like the question is, where is life, right? Where is, where's life found? What is life? Where is life? That we find ourselves sandwiched between birth and death. And we expect during the little dash, right? The little dash of our life that there should be life. And the only problem is, is in the middle of life, we, we sometimes find ourselves looking up and wondering and asking a question, well, I thought there was to be life. Where's life? When we're struggling to survive, struggling to find that life, struggling to find identity and meaning and purpose, when you break it all down, we're all asking the same question in those moments, where's the life? It's the, it's the question, and I read this many years ago, it's the question that the son, the son responded to with his father 
When his father came to him and said, now, son, you need to get a good education. And the son replied, yeah, dad, but why? He said, if, so you can get a good job. And the son said, well, yeah, dad, but why? Well, so that you can get a high salary. I understand, dad, but why? The dad answered, so you can buy whatever you want to buy. You can live wherever you want to live. You can drive whatever you want to drive. You can wear whatever you want to wear. I understand, dad, but why? Well, so you can have money set aside for your children's education so they don't have to, to scrounge and try to work their way through college and study at the same time. Yeah, Dad, I understand that, but why? So that when you get old, you can retire in ease and you don't have to go back to work and you can just relax and sit on the beach. Dad, I understand so I can retire and have something extra, but why? So that when you die, son, you can have something to leave. You see, the question the son kept asking and the question that kind of sums it up is, Dad, where's the life in that? He was asking, is life just work? Is it just coming home from work? Is it making some money, living in a nice house, driving a nice car? Or is there more to life than that? That's the question. The question, there's got to be more. There's got to be more to life than what you have, who you are, who you know, what you're doing. There's got to be something more meaningful. Where's life? But that's the world we're living in. We're trying to find what life is all about. That is, and, and, and as we're doing that, that's giving the enemy, Satan, our adversary, a field day. Because when we don't know who we are and, and we don't know where we're going or where we've come from, when all that happens, the devil, Satan, slips us imitation life. He slips us a fake life. Making us believe, though, that that's real. This is what life is. And when we're on the Ferris wheel year after year thinking that's real, and as long as we keep spinning on the Ferris wheel, as long as we keep you know, living in that way with the fake and the imitation life, we'll never understand where life is really found. Now, the tragedy is, though, many think that that's life. Sometimes we perceive that the ability to perform equals life. Like we think because our program is and our calendar is so jam-packed with information and, and, and events that, that, that that's what life is. We must be alive. Jesus looks out onto this world and he says, this world's dead and that's why I've come. So this morning what I want to look at and what I want to share with you is two blueprints upon our life. The blueprint of the thief and the blueprint of Jesus. Then how do we respond? John chapter 10, verses 7 through 10. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Verse 8, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Verse 10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it Abundantly. So again, the first blueprint is the blueprint of the thief. And so in that last verse that I just read, in verse 10, we see that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And the first part of his blueprint is devastation. It's intentional, total destruction. But the question we ask, well, then who is the thief? John 10, 8 in our text says, all who come before me are thieves and robbers. And if we were to look back just one chapter in John chapter 9, it's, it's, the, it's the story of the blind man who was blind from birth. And Jesus comes upon the blind man, and just to kind of recap it for you, you can look back there in, in the scripture. 
But he comes upon the blind man, and he sees that he is blind, and they have an interaction. And this is where Jesus gets down, and he spits into the mud, and he makes mud pies, and he puts it on the blind man's eyes, and he tells him, go wash. And when the, when the blind man goes and washes in the pool, he is able to see. And when that happens, all the people that were there are like questioning it. Wait, was this the blind beggar? Was this him? Is this, this has to be somebody else. And so after they continue to question and wonder if this really happened, they take the guy to the Pharisees who are the antagonists in the story. And in verse 13, it says they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. And the Pharisees continue to press this man who is the blind beggar who can now see about his sight. And they kept asking him, who did this? And they even, they even if you continue to read through chapter 9, you'll see that they even interrogated his parents. Like they went to his parents and they said, wait, is this your son who was blind from birth? Which they responded to, yes, he is. And by the way, he's old enough to answer your questions. Go talk to him. And the blind beggar finally responds in John chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. He says, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, this is the Pharisees, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. They're talking about, talking about Jesus. In verse 25, he says, he answered, this is the blind beggar. He says, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. It's a great line. It's a great line. And in chapter 9 to chapter 10, there's no gap. Like, like the, the story and the dialogue continues even though we have chapter numbers. But there's a conversation that's continuing. The same story continues. And Jesus is actually still in the area. He hasn't left the area. And what we're going to see is that Jesus takes over the dialogue at the end of chapter 9 into chapter 10. Now, the division in chapter 9 that was going on with the blind man was who is, who is from God and who isn't from God. And so Jesus is going to begin to explain who is from God and who is opposed to God. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 10, he says, Truly, truly, and any time we see truly, truly for those scholars of Scripture, we know to pay attention. He says, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. He's saying those who don't enter the right way, that come in through a different way, they, they'd rather sneak in. They're not bringing anything good. What are they trying to do? They're trying to take away. They're trying to take from, right? And so in verse 7 of our text, Jesus says it again. He says, I am the door of the sheep, revealing the intentions of the Pharisees, who in this case are the thieves, the robbers, right? And I want you to understand and notice something very important and very carefully. We may not have what we would label as Pharisees today. Trying to trip us up or trap us. But we do have the mastermind behind them trying to trip and trap us every day. We have the ultimate thief. We have Satan, the enemy. And in John 8, 44, you go back two chapters, Jesus describes him. Listen to what he says. He says, you are of your father, the devil. Now, he's speaking to Pharisees, those who are, who are all about rule following and not about grace, right? He says, you are of your father, the devil. And look what he says. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Again, he's talking about the devil and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, 
For he is a liar and the father of lies. He comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He is a thief out to kill and steal and destroy. He's plotting. He's plotting and scheming to eliminate, destroy, and to annihilate and devastate you and your family. And it's intentional. If you look at verse 10, the, very, the verse that we were looking at, the thief comes what? Only. This is Jesus speaking and describing the thief. And Jesus doesn't lie. And so when Jesus says only, this is his only motive. This is his only goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. It's singular. And it's focused. It's intentional. The thief is not interested in your eternal happiness or your joy or your life. But rather, there's this progressive line. When Jesus speaks this about the enemy, he says he steals and he kills and he destroys. It's progression. It's a progressive line of destruction, right? Now, Jesus has a mission to come that we celebrate at Christmas to redeem people for his glory and our good. But there's a competing mission that Satan, our adversary, is on. And that is one of singular desire of total destruction. There's no life found there. So Jesus came to bring us life. There's no life found here in the, in the blueprint of the thief, right? He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And the way he does that is through concealment, the second part of the blueprint. He destroys in secret. The very nature of the thief is to use deceitful methods, to twist a few words. We see it in Scripture. If you go all the way back to the beginning of your Bible in the book of Genesis, in the very beginning in chapter 3, when Satan comes and deceives Adam and Eve, from there all the way forward, even into our lives today, the twisting and deceitful nature and deceitful methods, and it's concealed, it's hidden, right? Makes it look like it's true, but it's not. He may present to us, and, and he may come at us in all kinds of ways, and vices and peoples and institutions. And his whole point is try anything, don't try Jesus. Anything, but don't try Jesus. Even things that look good, like morality. Like, like he uses the deception of morality that if you're, if you're just good, surely God will love you and welcome you in. So he, it's, it's concealment. And we see this in temporary pleasure. He always focuses on the temporary the immediate, right? That's part of his blueprint, his concealed blueprint. He never tells the end, right? He never shows the lows. He only focuses on the highs, right? And then we have this hidden eternal wreckage. Why? Because he doesn't tell the end of the story. The, the wreckage at the end of the road, like he shows you the road and he shows you the temporal pleasure right in front of you, but he doesn't show you where the, low, the, where the road leads to. He doesn't show you the end, he doesn't show you the destruction because he knows and you know that if we saw that this road led to destruction, like if you saw the end of it, you'd probably choose a different road. He will never point out the heartache, the ruined relationships, the destruction, ultimately the judgment. And there are many who have fallen into this lie disguised as truth. If I can just get one more thing, if I can have one more success, just one more move on the road, right? If I could attain one more position or, or know this person or get to this place, then I'll have peace, fulfillment, purpose, meaning, satisfaction. And it all goes wrong when those things are the ultimate 
And Jesus would say to Satan and anyone, as he said to the Pharisees, those who push these things onto others, you are the thief and the robber out to steal, kill, and destroy. It's not life plus, right? It's life minus. And the good news, though, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And he brought a new blueprint with him, which is the second piece, the blueprint of life in Christ. John 10, 10, back in our verse, the last half of verse 10 I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Praise the Lord. He didn't leave us with the thief who steals and kills and destroys, but he comes that we may have life, and not just life, but life abundantly. You see the contrast between the thief takes, Jesus brings. He comes in this blueprint in two ways, and the first is abundance, eternal life. John 10, 9, the verse right before that, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus brings life abundantly to us, abundant life, which is so much more than anything the world and the dominion of Satan in the world could ever offer. It's about having what only God can offer, eternal life, which is what he says there, he will be saved, eternal life. In the contrast to the blueprint of the thief, Jesus', Jesus design for our lives does reveal the end. He does show us the end. He shows us what's at the end, and it's, and it's, that, it's that seeing the end brings hope. That's what the difference is between those who are deceived by the thief and have fallen into that deception and those who see through the life of Christ as he is the light of the world. We see the end of the road. And no matter how dark the step or the path may be right now, we know at the end there's light because Jesus is there. He shows us the end. He shows us the reality. And it's a, it's a glorious reunion with him as Savior who's come for us and will one day come again. So abundant life is not about having the stuff it's not about having this stuff, but it's about having purpose and meaning and peace and joy and ultimately Jesus who brings those things that go beyond any of our expectations. And the second part of his blueprint is simple. It's just simple. It's not, it's not hard. It's not complicated. It's simple. To be saved, the knowledge of God taken from the clutches of Satan to the embrace of God, Jesus brings life. He is life. How do we get this life? By trusting in him, repenting and trust. That's throughout the scriptures. And Jesus will define life for us. As Paul would say to us, to live as Christ, to die as gain, right? And so Jesus defines life this way in John 17, verses 1 through 3. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all, to all whom you have given him. And what Jesus was talking about at the time was come to go to the cross to pay our debt and to conquer it through his resurrection, right? Verse 3, though, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life has a definition as we ask that question, what is it? If someone were to ask you, what do you mean when you say that you can have eternal life. Is it meant by just eternal life is that we would never die? In other words, is it a quantitative idea that we continue in existence for all eternity? And the truth is we believe that about all people, believer or unbeliever. 
that everyone who is created will never die. There is a second death, right? But it will be eternal punishment and, and a separation from God. In other words, their soul and their body will live on forever, but under the wrath of God. That, that Jesus says, is not eternal life. That's not eternal life. Eternal life, then, Jesus says, is to know who? The only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That is eternal life. In other words, it is to be in relationship. Why? Because Jesus is life. It's not merely intellectual assent to God. It's not academic knowledge of who God is. Like I know his attributes and I know his character and I know things about God. But it's to be in relationship. And, and not only to know God the Father, but to know his son Jesus who he has sent. Easy way to understand and recognize abundant life, life plus three different things. Salvation, which he shares with us in verse 9, right? Jesus brings us. He will be saved. He delivers us from wrath. He delivers us three ways, right? He delivers us from the penalty of sin. God no longer holds us guilty as we believe in Jesus, right? His righteousness comes to us. We are delivered from the power of sin, the dominion of sin that is on this earth through, through the dominion of Satan until Jesus returns and, and finishes the final work, right? We are no longer under that power of sin. And, and, and then thirdly, we will be delivered from the presence of sin because we'll be with God forever where there is no sin. So we have salvation, but we also have abundant life is safety. If you look at verse 9 again, verse 9 says, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, which we looked at, and will go in and out. Will go in and out. One commentator explained it like this, to go in and out. This phrase was common in the New Testament uh, world. Whenever somebody said, are you going in or out? As they were greeting someone else, they were asking, is your city at peace or is it at war? Because if your city was, was at peace, you could go in and out. But if it's at war, you had to stay in. So when Jesus uses that in this verse, Jesus not only saves, but when he says you can go in and out, what Jesus is saying is I'm protecting you. It means protection. It means safety. We have the safety of God's protective provision until such a time as he wants otherwise. So abundant life is salvation, it's safety, but it's also satisfaction. At the last part of verse 9, we go in and out to where? To pasture. And pasture means satisfaction. When the sheep were always led out and found pasture as the shepherd would take them, they were what? They were satisfied. Why? Because there was plenty to eat. There was a soft cushion of grass to lay down on, right? He comes in. Jesus comes in and he meets us at our point of need. And you got to understand, and we need to understand, God does not always improve and remove all the hurts of life, but in the midst of the hurts of life, He satisfies. He comes and He provides the cushion of grace that we need. That's the truth of Psalm 23. So, so the question now is, how do you respond? What do you do? What do you do in response to this? And this is my prayer for all of us is that we enter by the door. Again, verse 7, the first part of our text. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. It's a personal door. Right? When the, when the shepherds would lead uh, their flock to places where there was no corral for them to be gathered like overnight, the shepherd would build an enclosure for them to be gathered in with one way in and one way out. And then the shepherd would sleep in the doorway. I'll, I'll show you a couple of pictures. 
It would look some, something similar to that, and the shepherd would lay there in the doorway would be the protective measure of in and out. I'll show you another one, to kind of an illustration to kind of show it. And that's how it would happen. And so Jesus was using this metaphor as he is the door. He is the doorway. He's paralleling the metaphor with a spiritual truth, which is to say there's only one way to salvation, and it's not a system, and it's not an organization, and it's not church affiliation, and it's not following rules, it's not moralism. Salvation is through a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. It's not me or you. It's Jesus. He came to bring freedom. He came to serve. He came to bring life, life in him. It's a personal door. It's in him. But it's also a singular door. Like I showed you in the pictures, there was no other way in or out. The only way in and out was through the door. And Jesus says this, I am the door of the sheep. There's not many doors. There's one door. He says, I am the door. He doesn't say, I am one of the doors. He says, I am the door. And we see the same proclamation in the other I am statements within, uh, within the book of John. There were seven places in the Gospel of John that Jesus speaks the I am statements. Let, us, let me remind us. He says, I am the bread of life, John 6.35. I am the light of the world, John 8.12. I am the door, John 10, verses 7 and 9, which we've been looking at. I am the good shepherd, John 10.11. I am the resurrection and the life, John 11.25. I am the way the truth and the life, John 14, 6. And I am the true vine, John 15, 1. And all of those labels that Jesus places on himself, right? He, he's claiming this about himself. You notice that they're all the. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection. There, is a, there are many, but no, it's singular, right? Jesus says there are no other ways and there are no other gods to save and to rescue, I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. And it certainly wasn't popular when Jesus said it. It's not popular either today. To say that Jesus is the only way to salvation and the only way to heaven. And while it may not be a popular truth, it is truth. And it doesn't have to be popular to be true. Because of all the people in human history... Jesus of Nazareth is the only one born of God and of man. He is the only one who is perfect in word and deed. He is the only one who bore your sins and my sins and the sins of the world. He is the only one who was buried and who was raised for our justification three days later. He is the only one who has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is the only one interceding for you and me and for all the saints. He is the only one who is the reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is the only one who will return as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is the only one here in this passage who can give us life because he is life. Acts 4.12, Luke writes to us, And there is salvation in no one else, and he's speaking of Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, For there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given the proper time. Listen. Before Christ, without Christ, it is an existence. With Christ, it is life because he is life. I want to finish with reading 
what I referred to earlier, the most famous psalm, Psalm 23. But I want to read it with a little explanation with each line. And my hope and prayer this morning is we allow it to speak the truth of this as we look at the great shepherd who is our door. And as we allow him just to speak these truths from Psalm 23 into our lives. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. That's relationship. I shall not want, that's supply. He makes me lie down in green pastures, that's rest. He leads me beside still waters, that's refreshment. He restores my soul, that's healing. He leads me in paths of righteousness, that's guidance. For his name's sake, that's purpose. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's testing. I will fear no evil, that's protection. For you are with me, that's faithfulness. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, that's discipline. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, that's hope. You anoint my head with oil, that's consecration. My cup overflows, that's abundance. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, that's blessing. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord, that's security forever, that's eternity. Jesus came so we may have life, life abundantly, which is only found in him. Salvation, safety, satisfaction. There is no other place or person or thing that can provide that for our lives. I urge you, for those sitting here and those watching, above all else, of any other door that the world or the enemy could present in front of you to walk through, that you would enter through the door of Jesus Christ, that you would believe on him and repent of sin and trust him and his grace for salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, again, that you didn't leave us to fend and fight for ourselves against the enemy who is actively working to destroy us, but you sent your Son and our Savior to rescue us from just an existence to life. Thank you that we can see life as we see Christ as what he has brought to us. We can experience life as we experience Christ within us and through us, and we can share that with others. Thank you that one day we'll know that life in full when we're home. God, I pray for those who are hurting and struggling, who have maybe believed the deception and the lies of the enemy, who have fallen into that who may be walking down that road and that path of destruction. God, right now in this moment, give them the ability to see more clearly that this isn't the path that you have for them. That they need to stop, pause, look at Christ, see what he has done, know his love and his grace and his victory and trust in him and believe in him for salvation. May your spirit move in this place. You are so great, so great for us and to us, which leads us into a posture of humility and thankfulness this Christmas season. And we praise him for all that he has done and all that he will do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.